this will this will be fun. It's nice to get to talk to you uh, again and uh, about about your work. You just keep turning out books way too fast. This is. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, the the book that I wrote with Sally Montgomery, we had written already as columns okay, for yes. the Boston Globe. And so what we did was put them together, and that didn't take much time. We'd already written them. But meanwhile, I was working on this other book, The, the Hidden Life of Life. So it came out shortly after, but that wasn't because I wrote it quickly, because <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on it all along. Yeah, and um, so with The Hidden Life of Life, what um, what gave you... Uh, what inspired you to want to take on sort of the the breadth of evolution, so to speak, in such a really what is a slim, tight, very readable and enjoyable volume? But uh, yeah, what what made you want to take it on? Well, I that's a good question. I kind of didn't quite know what I was taking on when I started it. What I wanted to do was to show the commonality of all of life on Earth. Uh, when you think about it, there are there are perhaps a billion other planets in the universe that are at the minimum, the barest minimum would be a billion, who have who are the same the right distance from the sun and have the right conditions to have life on them along the lines that we know it. And so but and on each one is a no doubt or perhaps um all all the life forms started from from one, uh, some one thing, a bacterium, like something like a bacterium, probably, and that's what happened to us, at least. And we, the we're all descended from the same from the same ancestor, you know, billions of years ago. But and with each group of, of life forms taking different directions to solve their problems, and that's why we have a quite a large array of life forms now but it just seemed to me very important that we're related and uh, we don't see ourselves that way and I and I think maybe we should we wouldn't destroy the others quite so fast if we did yeah yeah no kidding it it, it, it what um what was so maybe illuminating about this experience tracing from you know our sort of uh you know going from microbes to you know the so the multi-celled organisms that we all are yeah, yeah. what was the most illumin- illuminating for you well what, what was illuminating for me and i'm not sure i got enough of it in the book um so i'll have to write another book um <laughs> was was every single thing about us from our fingernails to our hair or teeth or insides everything had a, had a had a passage it, it it came from something else and it came from it came because it it worked and um i mean just to think of our own bodies is is kind of amazing i mean i think i wrote about coughing and the the cough itself seemed amazing and caused by a virus which seemed amazing and if you if you look at if you look at your surroundings that way, it's kind of eye opening, and you uh, you 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 begin to think of what you what you really are and how how you fit into all all of this. Yeah, not only that, it, it seems like it would be almost overwhelming too to to try to process all of that. In, uh... <laughs> Did you did you run into that as you were writing the book about like which 
organisms to pick to help illustrate the the path of the tree of life? Well, it it, it wasn't very difficult because things pop into your mind. I mean, um, for instance, the the ancestors of of mammals were were here before the dinosaurs. Well, that kind of thing is surprising. That I didn't, I hadn't known. I mean, I could think in those lines. But they were called synapsids, and they looked sort of like dinosaurs. And they were here for thousands and thousands of years before there were any dinosaurs. And then a big extinction came and wiped them out, or most of them out, not all of them. And they went, then the dinosaurs ruled the earth for thousands and thousands of years and now are still here as birds and we are still we are the synapsid of uh, of springs or heirs uh, here as mammals and uh, I mean that sort of thing is is to me quite fascinating and well worth thinking about I mean it's there was a wonderful image of you're standing beside your mother holding her hand and she's holding her mother's hand who's holding her mother's hand on and on back through time until the hand that's being held is, um, who knows what it was, it's an absent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and everything that's alive now had an ancestor that goes, had, can trace, could every single creature, tree, plant, whatever, can trace it, could, I mean, it's answer if he goes back to the first life form. You also write, you write a lot about, um, or you kind of start start the book with this whole um, anthropodenial. Am I praying? Yeah. Anthropo, anthropo, Anthro, anthrodenial and anthropomorphism. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, what's the distinction between the two, and uh, what can be problematic for, for each, if anything? Well, Franz Duval invented the word anthropodenial, I believe, to counter the idea of anthropomorphism, because we used to, we anthropomorphism, of course, means um, regarding uh, discussing something as if it had an, as if it had human characteristics. Anthropodenial means discussing it as if it did not have have human characteristics, which I think is more than fair. And we we looked down upon anthropomorphism for the longest time. It was scientific folly, or scientific silly talk. And uh, uh, although before before in the 1400s, for instance, in the Middle Ages, people believed that animals had human characteristics and treated them that way. Not necessarily treated them well, but treated them as if they could take blame like humans can. And uh, a pig was executed. This is in the book in the early part. A pig and her piglets were put on trial for for murdering a child. Mm. And the pig was found guilty and executed. The the piglets were acquitted. And people even had lawyers for their animals back then. So that was what we would call that anthropomorphism. And today, we we wouldn't give... We just shoot a pig that did something. We wouldn't, if even if we thought it did something, or even if we just felt like it, we'd shoot it. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't put the, we wouldn't believe it had guilt. Science is now turning. I mean, many people now are are, are treating these issues as if as if they were important, and and a lot of work is being done. Uh, some scientists 
had parameciums, which they taught to remember things, and caterpillars have been taught to remember things. So we're proving that memory is a human characteristic, and we're proving that this goes all the way through the plant and animal kingdom. Even plants remember things. So the idea that we're the unique, special, top of the evolutionary ladder creatures that we took ourselves to be is just turning out to be not true. We won't change our opinion. We'll always think we're, you know, the best animal. But I I suspect that every species feels that it is the best animal and the others are, you know, a fox thinks foxes are important and everything else is just not a fox. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I I think what you mentioned in the book too is just, you know, uh, us as primates just happen to be on the end of one particular branch of ongoing evolution, but we're just yeah, so, yeah, yeah we're yeah, so myopic yeah. in a sense that like we want yes, to picture right. it yeah. as like a pyramid. Yeah. 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 And, uh, well, yeah, like a pyramid. Yeah. And uh, what was the, you know, your, your research like, you know, what were you reading to help inform, uh, how you developed this book, you know, some, some influential texts and maybe something that really just was a good germ that gave you a lot of a uh, leash to run with. Let me see. The, the, I read you know, tons of stuff. I don't remember everything I read. Um, one that was very important was, well, but I, the thing is I knew about it already. It was um, by uh, Catherine Payne, Katie Payne, and it was Silent Thunder, I believe it's called. And it was about her, she discovered infrasound in elephants. That was her discovery. And I was fortunate enough along, to go along with her when, when she made it, uh, or when she documented it. And uh, and her book is, is, I think, very important. Um, also, I got an awful lot of things from things that people told me because I've hung around with people who do this kind of thing, and I do this kind of thing myself. And uh, it was sort of a gathering or putting together of lots of stuff I'd heard and learned, and uh, more than just reading one book after another as a research object. I would think of something that I wanted to talk about, and then I'd look up more information about that. But maybe it's better to do a, a literary study, but that kind of wasn't how I approached this. Mm. And you already you mentioned that uh, in your research, that discovering how far back mammals go and how they kind of predated and coexisted uh, with dinosaurs was a bit of a surprise. Uh, yes, what what else was what else surprised you in the course of, of your research that you might have known uh, that might have bucked a preconceived notion you had about a, a certain group of the animal kingdom? Well, one thing that surprised me—I'm not sure it should have—was that a platypus. Ah, yeah. A, a platypus—they don't have breasts. They have—they have the old synapsid thing, which was glands under their skin. This came from synapses. Glands under their skin, and the milk leaks out when they have two babies at a time. I didn't know this, but they have once a year they have give birth to two babies. And the babies, 
they hold the babies against themselves, and the babies, the milk leaks into wrinkles on their on the mother's belly, and the little ones lick it out from there. And I, I was that I that was completely new to me that idea. Yeah. And I, but it's fascinating. I think I saw a platypus one time, but I mean, you see, you, I didn't even see it. I just saw something whiz by underwater, and it must have been a platypus, um, that kind of thing. So that isn't what what you call a meaningful experience with a platypus. <laughs> but the, the but the, this the, this then then I mean then breasts arrived, breasts came as a uh, from that line, and the uh, the other mammals. It's a mammal. Other mammals have have breasts, and 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 then I began to learn about eggs and the, the egg in a human and the egg and a chicken, and why they're different, and that marsupials have a different kind of of placenta, and the babies are born earlier because they they use up what's in the egg, what's in the placenta. They use that up earlier than mammals do. Mammals can stay in their placenta longer. And, uh, I mean, there's more nourishment from them because it comes from the mother. Things like that. I mean, that that, that is... To me, surprising and fascinating, and that was was great to write about that. <laughs> yeah, and it's fine, like alluding to the the size and scope of the universe. Which the more you think yeah. about, the more it, you just it makes you it makes me stutter just because I can't even <laughs> yes. can't even think about it. Uh, yes, uh, yes, I don't think we're equipped to. I don't think the human brain is equipped to cope with something like that. I think we just can't. Yeah. Exactly. It's like dogs can't read, and we can't do that. It, yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it's it's fine. I was listening to or watching a program with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he was talking about uh, it was it was bi- a biology centric episode, and um, it was something he posed this thing about if you know if we're ever gonna run into intelligent life or see it out there, and he. He uh, he said, okay, it's like there's say a one percent genetic difference between our smartest human and like the smartest gorilla or chimpanzee. And, and we look at that chimpanzee, like as smart as it is, as like, it's not quote unquote intelligent life. And so, yeah. And then, and then he was posing, I mean, yeah. I mean, anyone who like gives animals like you or Cy and countless others, uh, their credit can realize that how intelligent, animals are oh yeah yeah um but but what he was saying and this is what was kind of sobering was all right say there is another life form out in outer space that is one percent more quote-unquote advanced than we are what if they already came here and saw that there was no intelligent life and left yeah that's entirely possible isn't isn't that kind of i'm sure that happened Oh, this is a mess. <laughs> I'm going. <laughs> yeah, it's just I wonder. I wonder, like, if you know, when you when you've been studying this kind of stuff, and, you know, if you just kind of like toy around with those kind of thoughts, especially as you yeah. look outside of Earth. Well, the uh, I'd say two things about that. First, I'm there's I see no way that there are more than a billion other planets that could host life that some of them aren't hosting life as we know. I mean, life of some kind along the lines as we know. I mean, maybe, maybe they started from a whole different kind of formula, but, but, um, 
I'm sure they're out there, and they've been there. Many of them have been there a long time, time to develop into whatever. Um, I, I wonder if they're ruining their planet like we're ruining ours. Uh, mm-hmm. The thing is, we didn't start doing that until we got uh, until the Neolithic. The Neolithic was the birth of that. Um, before the people I lived with in the in the Namibia, what is now Namibia, Southwest Africa, then in the 1950s. These were pre-contact people who lived a life of hunting and gathering the way they and our, they are our ancestors and the way our ancestors lived for 100,000 years oh, without wrecking everything. I mean, that, that was a, a, a good time. Many, many species lived with varying degrees of cooperation or not cooperation, but they all understood each other. I'm, I've written elsewhere, and I pro- I'm sure I put it in that book. I hope I did. The, the The lions and the people had a truce. The lions didn't didn't hunt the people. Yeah, that was that was fascinating. Needed, yeah, because they both needed to to drink from. They had one source of water, and they needed to drink from it. And if one group had disturbed the other, somebody would have to move. And the people had the people had friends and relatives at other campsites at other encampments where water holes where they could go uh, the lions would have to go and take the the take the water hole from the, the lions who lived there and that wouldn't be good for anybody and both species knew it so um and that went on for a hundred thousand years one encampment was dug up that was that had been constantly occupied continuously occupied for 85,000 years another one for 35,000 years um that I mean, we, we haven't done anything for thirty for a hundred thousand years. Um, I mean, the Neolithic was more recent than that. So, and in that short time, we've managed to just spoil. You know, most very soon, most African animals will be extinct. I mean, certainly the big ones and the little ones. And uh, you know, that's happening all over the world. And trees, various species of trees are, are disappearing and so forth and so on. And that big plastic island in the ocean. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, we've done it. Um, maybe we can stop and hold back a little. It would be good. And, you know, any little bit of information like a book about it might help a little tiny bit. Yeah, it's a it's amazing the speed with which humans are destroying yeah. the planet. Like it's only in yeah. the last really uh, maybe the two to three hundred years where things really started to get serious about planet. Yeah, that's that's very true, and more and it increases as time goes by. We're doing it more, more, more all the time. Yeah, it's really like in the the the. In the terms of the scale of the life of the Earth, it's really like at the speed yeah. of like we are destroying the planet at the speed of light almost compared yeah, to yeah, the, that's right. It's seconds of thousands of years, and in the few seconds we've done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it's amazing what the you know the what the planet has been able in life on the whole has been able to withstand over the years too. You know, you mentioned the yeah. you know a few of the. It, there are these periods of extinctions and so forth, and ice ages, and then hot. It, it, what a! It's kind of amazing, and I wonder, like, how much thought you gave to just the resiliency of life, but also just the way the planet has, 
evolved itself over the years and how it can just stay for millions of years in a per- in a particular state but then it starts to change again and uh it's kind of kind of weird and wacky and i wonder like what kind of thought you've given that um in your well, research it, it was the event the events that changed it i mean we we today are an event that's changing it but mm-hmm. you know there were several other different kinds of events and it's it's very interesting to see who made it and who didn't um big dinosaurs big land big non-flying dinosaurs did not make it Wonderful creatures called um, pterosaurs. That's, that's right. the word. Yeah. Okay, they're gone, and they didn't leave heirs. I mean, there's no nothing that came from them. Fabulous animals they were, and uh, they weren't dinosaurs. They weren't mammals. They weren't. They were just pterosaurs, different. And uh, and the and the the, uh, the only the only avian dinosaurs, small ones, became birds, and the some of the the uh, the synapsids became um, survived. They were the small ones, actually, probably not the big ones, but the small ones, and they they uh, became mammals. Uh, this this kind of thing to me is is in terms of what we're talking about, a fairly short times. Not, I mean, you know, thousands of years, but that's not much in the terms of the universe. Hmm. And a lot of one of my favorite parts of the book was towards the end, actually, when you were recounting those experiences you had in um, in, in what is now Namibia, and kind of learning about those that uh, the pre-contact uh, culture yeah. there. Um, what did uh, you know? Go, taking us back to to that time, what um, you know? What did you what did you learn and take away from from those people and how they were living? And how maybe if we followed some of their principles, maybe we can regain uh, regain the earth in a way that's more sustainable. We certainly could if we followed what they did, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, what I learned was uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they knew everything about their environment. They knew everything. Um, I think I put in the book that a, a boy saw a hyena tracks with little tiny pinpricks on them, and he saw it from a distance, and he knew that the tracks were the tracks of a beetle, a certain kind of beetle. Okay, I mean, a kid, just for the heck of it, happened to mention that. But, I mean, that's the kind of thing they knew. They knew the properties of every plant and and the habits of every animal, and including insects, including beetles. They discovered... Arrow poison, which is in the larva of a of a beetle, the larvae go un, underground. They go a few feet down and make their pupa casing, and in that casing, they're they're poisonous, deadly poisonous. One of the most deadly poisons in the world. How did they find it? How did they find it? They, if you are poisoned with it, it you take a, it destroys your hemoglobin, so it takes a long time for you to die. And I'm not sure you feel terribly uncomfortable. I mean, I don't know how you feel when when that's happening, but how if you died three days after you got some poison in you, how would people know that it was the that it was the grub, the the poison grub, and not everything else that you'd been touching? You know, I mean, it's this is observation at its highest level, and uh, but they did it. That's what they did, and they, that's how they lived. If we could do that, we'd be in much better shape. If we knew as much about what our planet, as they knew, we would be in 
much better shape. Not that they were conservation-minded, because the conservation wasn't a problem. They were survival-minded, and and uh, this was their key to survival. What What do you think eventually gave way to um, gave way to agrarian societies? Was it Was it merely uh, population growth? Like I wonder what what trigger what trigger in modern human evolution like went from that the hunter gatherers who were on these camps for 35,000 years yeah. and, to, and to eventually settle into what's quote unquote civilization which kind of put us onto this destructive yeah. tract i wonder like yeah. what was do you know what the inflection point was in in that development well it has to have been the neolithic when um people they had possessions personal possessions um, that that would have wouldn't help. The 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 sand had personal possessions, but they 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 gave things to each other. They gave possessions to each other. Nobody had more of anything than anybody else. Nobody was better or stronger or supposed to be smarter or anything than anybody else. People were supposed to be equal. Women were equal to men. Uh, there they didn't know there were no headmen or important people. Nobody was more important than anybody else. Uh, I think that ended with the Neolithic when when pe- people lived more as individuals with with personal possessions. I think that steered us in in the direction that we're heading now. Also with permanent more permanent residences. Although the you, nobody could say that the sand didn't have permanent residences because mm-hmm. they did, but it was in a different, in, owned in a different way. It wasn't by individuals; it was by uh, groups, and who were related to other groups who had the right to come to that encampment and so forth. I mean, had the right; they were invited to that encampment. You know that that kind of thing. Right. It's uh, it's an interesting you know, topic to explore. You know, you know. it is. Yeah, just even just when you look at any individual life form, just looking out your window, you're kind of reminded that you're part of you're a part yeah. of a bigger thing, and maybe yeah, yeah. And is that maybe like one of the 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 takeaways you're hoping people get from this book, in a sense that we are that, a, yeah a part of a larger connection. That would be that would be nice if people could see. Um, it would be nice if I could communicate the idea that what you're seeing is not a beautiful view. It's a collection of life forms who are going, doing what they need to do, especially if they're on the animal side of things. Um, even, well, no, plants too and fungi. But, I mean, right now I'm, I'm in my home house in New Hampshire and I'm looking out the window and there are two deer in the field. And they have had, um, I mean, it's been... Their winter was not too bad because we didn't have too much snow at first, but now we got to have a lot of snow and a very heavy snow cover. For the last few weeks, they have um, they have had trouble finding food. There's a patch of there's a place which traditionally loses the snow first, and it's because of I'm not perfectly sure why I've never been able to figure it out. But the deer know it, and they come. That's where they're coming to eat. And I mean to be to know what they're doing and why they're doing it and who they are. I mean, who they are is that kind of thing is very important and it gives you a whole different look at the view, so to speak. 
Very nice. Well, you know, Elizabeth, this is a, you know, kind of a quick hit conversation here. Uh, I, I'm going to steer a lot of people towards our previous one where we digged a lot into your origin and your writing routine and everything else. And I, I got to say, you're, of all the nearly 100 episodes that I've recorded, you've got my favorite quote of all time that, <laughs> that 11, 11 a.m. is an optimistic time. <laughs> yes. I love that so much. Like every time yeah. 11 a.m. rolls around, I'm like, this this is a good time right now, and this is a good time to get work done. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Fantastic. Well, uh, That's from, yeah. Well, from that, the Arctic sun, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for carving out a little time to talk about your 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 latest book of your uh, your story, really storied career. But I, I wish you uh, big success with this one, and I can't wait for what uh, what comes after. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is I love doing this. I mean, with you. That's very nice. Thank you. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, and uh, we'll be in touch. Take care. Thanks. Good. Good. Right. Bye. Bye.